years ago, in the church where I served as a worship pastor, there was a, a husband and wife about my parents' age who attended from time to time. They'd come for a couple of weeks, and then we wouldn't see them for a year or so, and then they'd come back for a couple of weeks, and, and then they'd be off again. They traveled all over the place in search of something that was just beyond their reach, in search of revival or awakening. They visited mega churches and traditional churches and charismatic churches and every type of church and every denomination in between. And for all I know, I've lost uh, communication with them, but for all I know, they're still searching, still digging, still working to discover the elusive experience of, of God's presence. Restlessness can take many different shapes in our lives. It's an example of spiritual restlessness. But whether it's spiritual or whether it's emotional restlessness, whether it's physical restlessness, one thing is absolutely certain. We all experience restlessness in one way or another. And there's a very clear biblical explanation for this. In the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve rebelled against the creator God, what happened? Order gave way to disorder. Completion gave way to toil. And rest gave way to unrest. Ever since that moment when humanity was exiled from the Garden of Eden, we have suffered the tyranny of restlessness. And I think that that's an appropriate word to use. But this isn't what we were created for. And deep down, I think everyone knows that. We have been designed in the likeness of a God who himself rested. And thankfully, he has not abandoned us in the wilderness of our unrest that we have brought about for ourselves. In his gracious goodness, he has forged a, a way for us to re-enter the rest that our souls crave. The million dollar question is, will we trust him enough to, to bring us into it? Will we trust him to bring us into the rest our souls crave. At the very end of last Sunday's passage, in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews lamented that the wilderness generation of Israelites did not trust God to bring them into the rest that he had promised to give them. Because of their unbelief, they were unable to enter that rest. And now in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through, 10, 1 through 13, that's our passage this morning. In this passage, the writer of Hebrews continues this train of thought and he urges his Jewish Christian audience, the original recipients of this letter, he urges them and us not to miss out on the rest of God that is right under our noses. I'd invite you to follow along as I read. Hebrews chapter four, verses one through 13. 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, in the reading of your word, we have just heard your voice. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us understanding and that today, we would not harden our hearts toward you, but that we would believe you, believe your word, and that we would enjoy your rest now and in fullness forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Difficult passage. I mean, it took me like 14 reads just to kind of understand in English what was going on. Not unlike my favorite Indian food dish. Ooh, there's a lot going on in this passage. That's the illustration, that's, that's it. We've got a dash of the promised land and the Sabbath. We've got a couple spoons of King David and a pinch of Joshua. We've got God himself resting on the seventh day of creation. And we've got good news that must be believed that we might taste the rest we crave. Like my favorite Indian food dish, there's a lot going on here. But there is a single theme that is made plain throughout it and each one of us would do well to pay attention. In order to enter God's rest, we must believe the good news. 
If you're a note taker, that two-part statement that summarizes this passage, that two-part statement will serve as our outline for the remainder of our time. Point number one, in order to enter God's rest. Point number two, we must believe the good news. Number one, in order to enter God's rest. In verse four, we read, for he, God, has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. I giggle at that. He's somewhere spoken of it in Genesis 2 too, right? And this is what he spoke. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now what we mustn't uh, understand this to mean is that God, after creating the heavens and the earth, needed to take some sort of holy nap on his heavenly couch. Our triune creator God is omnipotent and inexhaustible. And he upholds the universe, as we've read earlier in the book of Hebrews. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so what it means that God rested is simply and precisely what the writer of Hebrews says. God rested from all his works. God ceased from his labor of crafting and constructing and creating. Interestingly, of all the days of creation that are recorded in Genesis chapters one and two, the seventh day is not unlike or not like the others. It's not a double negative. The seventh day is not like the others. We've got God himself resting on the seventh day. And we've got good news I lost my place in my notes. <laughs> of all the days of creation, the seventh day was not like the others, ladies and gentlemen. At the end of days one through six, we are told there was evening and there was morning. And then the story transitions to the next day. If you remember Genesis one and two, day one, there was evening, there was morning, day two. Day two, there was evening, there was morning, day three. It's not so with the seventh day. We are not told there was evening and morning on the day when God rested from all his works. And that is because the seventh day continues. There is an ongoing rest that God himself presently enjoys. And it is one that the writer of Hebrews says in verses one and six of our passage, this rest that God enjoys is open and available To us, God is inviting us into it. God wants to share his rest with us. And it's a kind of rest that goes much deeper than a nap or a week's vacation. And hallelujah for that, because if you've got young kids, a week of vacation is not restful in the slightest. (laughs) The rest that God desires to share with us is a deep rest supernatural rest that permeates our hearts and our minds and our souls. It's a kind of rest that produces a bit of what we see in Psalm 27 when King David is surrounded on all sides by enemies and he writes this, though an army encamps against me and though wars arise against me, my heart will not fear. I am confident in my God. He is the stronghold of my life. 
God's rest is the kind of rest that calms our outward fears, but it's also the kind of rest that stills our inner strivings. When our guilty consciences tempt us to think that we must do more to earn or to keep our place in God's family, God's rest says otherwise. Romans 8.34, whom or what is to condemn you, believer? The devil? Your guilty conscience? The fact that you still have an untold number of ways you need to grow? The fact that you fail more often than you like? Is that to condemn you, really? No. No. Christ Jesus has died. And what's more, he has risen. And he is at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for you. God's rest is an ongoing rest that realizes this, that owns this. And God wants us to share in it that we may not place any confidence in our works at all. But that we might place all our confidence in his. Verse 10 of our passage. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his own works just as God did from his. For the wilderness generation, their 430 years of slave labor, slave labor in Egypt, had further ingrained into their minds what their sinful hearts already believed, what all of our sinful hearts are prone to believing. Rest only comes to those who work hard enough to get it. Right, that's what slave labor will do to you right there. You want to take a breather? You want a glass of water? Earn it. That's an enticing lie, though, for our fallen hearts because it appeals to our desire to rely on ourselves. The grievous irony, however, is that self-reliance is the very thing that keeps us from the rest we crave. For the wilderness generation, before God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, he had promised he would bring them into the land of Canaan, the promised land of rest. He promised that he would bring them to the promised land if only they would lay down their self-reliance and trust him to get them there. It was really that simple. And yet, one of the most difficult things for fallen human beings to do is to abandon the trust we place in ourselves in order to place our trust in God fully. As the writer of Hebrews lamented last Sunday in 319, as he lamented then, he continues to lament in our passage, that wilderness generation of Israelites, they never trusted God. They never simply believed him. And so God said, which is repeated in verse three and verse five of our passage, and it's a quote from Psalm 95. It's a scathing word. They shall not enter my rest. You don't believe me that I'll get you there? 
on my own, you won't enter my rest. On account of their unbelief, the wilderness generation died in the wilderness of their unrest. And the writer of Hebrews does not want that for his audience. God's promise still stands, he writes in verse one. Hear that, church. God still wants to bring you into his own rest where your fears are stilled and your strivings cease. But we should be fearful that we won't enter it, he continues. And so, brothers and sisters, we should take a good hard look at ourselves in order to rightly discern where our trust really lies. This is big boy, big girl stuff right here. Where does your trust really lie? We might be faithful church attenders. We might have Christian fish bumper stickers on our minivans. We might know a lot about God and a lot about his word. But are we united by faith with those who listened to him? Verse two, are we united by faith with those who listened? Do we sincerely trust in God's ability to finish what he has started or do we and are we secretly defaulting to resting in and trusting in our own abilities to finish what he started? Point number one, in order to enter God's rest. Point number two, we must believe the good news. In verse two, we read, for good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. And we're not hearing that wrongly. You're reading it rightly. Even the ancient Israelites heard the message of good news long before the incarnation and death and resurrection of Christ. Long before that even occurred, they heard the good news. Back in Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, moments after Adam's sin ushered chaos and disorder and unrest into the world, God promised the good news that an offspring would come. A savior born of a woman would come to defeat the serpent and overturn the effects of sin. And if that weren't enough, if that weren't a clear enough promise for the ancient Israelites in the wilderness, a while later in Genesis 12, God told Abraham, the father of the Israelites, that his promise, God's promise of redemptive blessing would come into the world through Abraham's own family. Here's what to look for, Israelites. The good news that was told to the ancient Israelites was not unlike an ultrasound picture. Looking at Brooke over here, and she's familiar with ultrasounds, and all of you mothers should be, and fathers too, if you had the stomach to look at it, right? So here's the thing. Ultrasound pictures 
reveal the size and the shape of those who will soon enter the world. If not yet entered the world, but it reveals a pretty good picture of what's coming. Ultrasounds give us a good idea of what to expect. And so it was with the good news that was given to the ancient Israelites. And that ultrasound also included a promised land, a type of rest, and a Sabbath, a type of rest. And yet the ancient Israelites, on repeat, even after they entered the land with Joshua's leadership, they didn't believe what they were hearing. I mean, just read it. As for us, and as for the Jewish Christians to whom the letter of Hebrews was first written, we've been given much more than an ultrasound, folks. We've been given a high-resolution senior picture, if you'd like. We've been given the conclusive good news message, and we must listen to it with our hearts. How's that? Listen to it with your heart. The good news is so good because of the bad news that precedes it. It's the way that I like to describe it in our membership classes and when we're doing sit-downs with uh, prospective members. The good news is so good because of the horrible news that precedes it. And that is this. We, like Adam and Eve, have all sinned against God. We've all disobeyed the God who created us for his glory and we will all give an account to him for the way we've conducted ourselves throughout our lives. Verses 12 and 13 of our passage emphasizes this. No creature, no human being will be hidden from God's sight on the day of judgment that is quickly approaching. We will each be stripped bare with no excuses to hide behind. And we will each have to give an answer to God for our every thought and word and attitude and action that does not accord with perfect righteousness. God's gospel word will investigate our heart and soul and mind and spirit and he will see he will discern if we have genuinely believed the good news or if we've merely just heard it. There's a difference. For countless many people, it will be a dreadful day of reckoning and it will be followed by the divine verdict that is fitting for such brazen rebellion and it's on repeat in our passage, you shall not enter my rest. Ever. This is really bad news. And it's what makes the good news so outlandishly good. And the good news, although we have sinned against our creator God, and although we deserve the punishment of eternal separation from him, Jesus Christ, by his sinless life and sacrificial death and vindicating resurrection, has 
fully secured forgiveness and freedom and forever life and guaranteed entry into a greater promised land with God for all of those who confess their sin and believe him. If you have already believed him, hallelujah, keep believing him. If you have not, don't delay another moment. Don't delay another moment. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't, don't, none of us should allow the devil to deceive us for one second. The creator God will be seeing us in his courtroom and we will not want to be representing ourselves. We'll want Christ to speak for us. And so confess your sin and believe Christ. It really is not all that hard and yet at the same time, one of the most difficult things for fallen human beings to do is to abandon the dang trust that we put in our own works to sweeten the deal for God. That's not how grace works. It's either unmerited favor or it's no favor at all. You're not sweetening the deal. Is the gospel opposed to obedience? No. But it's only obedience that is founded on Wretched to the fount I fly, wash me, Savior, even on my best day or I die. All of us, each of us, we must be diligent not to make the same grievous mistake as the wilderness generation who thought to themselves, now that God has saved us from slavery, it's up to us to get ourselves the rest of the way there. No. No, saved by grace. Full stop. God gave us his word that he would bring us to his heavenly, eternal, promised land if only we will lay down our self-reliance and trust him to get us there the Jewish Christians to whom this letter was first written, remember with me what they were facing. They were facing persecution on account of the message of Christ. And on account of the persecution that they were facing on account of the message of Christ, they were retreating back into Judaism, back to the law of Moses. And the law of Moses, among many other things, was designed was designed to squash any notion that we, through or by or with our works, can do anything to please God at all. For us, in 21st century America, I think it's probably uh, okay to say we're facing some opposition in this day and age. And we are prone, many of us, we are prone to putting our confidence in our works I was thinking through this a little bit today. There are two dangers. There are two ways to deny the grace of God. Licentiousness and legalism. There's one that I think is more dangerous. 
licentiousness, it's this idea of, Jesus, thank you so much for your grace. I'm going to put it in my pocket while I continue to live like an unbeliever. And legalism, of course, which is what the writer of Hebrews is really trying to urge these Jewish Christians away from, is, Jesus, thank you for the grace in your life, death, and resurrection. I'm going to put it in my pocket because it goes along really well with the good things that I'm doing. No wonder in verse 11, the writer of Hebrews is like, um, let us strive to enter the rest of just trusting Jesus moment by moment by moment by moment in order to enter God's rest and he wants to give it to you. He wants to give it to me. We've got to, on repeat, continually, unapologetically, and unceasingly believe the good news of Jesus Christ that he has done everything that was needed in order to fully accomplish our salvation, our sanctification, which his Holy Spirit will lead us through, and our glorification. It's this striving, I think, that the Apostle Paul has in mind in uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, when it's working out your salvation, work it out with fear and trembling, but know this, that it's God who is willing and working in you to work and to do and to believe is his, for his good pleasure. There is this from concept to completion, from the authoring, authoring of it to the finishing of it, to the beginning to the end of God's people being saved from their sin and ushered through the wilderness and brought into the promised land of his rest. It's all God. Will we believe him to get us there? What we believe informs how we behave. And I pray that we would trust. I pray that that would be our behavior. That husband and wife that I opened up with, always looking but never seeming to find what, right was, what was right underneath their noses, may it not be so for us today. We don't need to travel and scour the land looking for the presence of God. We don't need to sit here and examine ourselves so critically that if we're honest, the, 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 the angle that we bring into our self-examination is what else do I need to be doing in order to? No. Right there, you've gotten it wrong. And so have I. From concept to completion, Christ has accomplished it all. And we must believe it. And in that place, there is a restfulness in measure now and in full at the consummation of God's kingdom of heaven meeting earth and Jesus reigning. Let's pray and we'll continue to sing. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Um, I confess it was an intimidating passage. There's just so much going on and would just ask for my brothers and sisters to absolutely spit out the bones and to chew on the meat that is your inspired inerrant 
word. We've heard your voice today, God, in the reading of your word and would ask that by your Holy Spirit you would grant understanding of it. That those who are here who have not responded to the invitation to simply confess sin and believe Jesus, I pray that you would soften their hearts miraculously that they would do it. And for those of us, Lord, who have believed but are grievously in danger of trying to marry our works with your completed work, forgive us and lead us to repentance that we would more fully rely on, completely rely on the death and resurrection of Christ that brings us home. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.